Chapter 7 of Four Day Planet by H. Beam Piper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Four Day Planet. Chapter 7 Aboard the Javelin. We heard nothing more from Bish Ware that evening. Joe and Tom Kivelson and Oscar Fujisawa slept at the Times Building, and after breakfast, Dad called the spaceport hospital about Morell. He had passed a good night and seemed to have thrown off all the poison he had absorbed through his skin. Dad talked to him and advised him not to leave until somebody came for him. Tom and I took a car and a pistol apiece and a submachine gun and went to get him. Remembering, at the last moment, what I had done to his trousers, I unpacked his luggage and got another suit for him. He was grateful for that and he didn't lift an eyebrow when he saw the artillery we had with us. He knew already what the score was, and the rules, or absence thereof, of the game, and accepted us as members of his team. We dropped to the bottom level and went, avoiding traffic, to where the wax was stored. There were close to a dozen guards there now, all heavily armed. We got out of the car, I carrying the chopper, and one of the gang there produced a probe-rod and microscope and a testing kit and a micro-ray scanner. Morell took his time going over the wax, jabbing the probe-rod in and pulling samples out of the big, plastic-skinned sausages at random, making chemical tests, examining them under the microscope, and scanning other cylinders to make sure there was no foreign matter in them. He might not know what a literary agent was, but he knew tallow-wax. I found out from the guards that there hadn't been any really serious trouble after we left Hunter's Hall. The city police had beaten a few men up, Natch, and run out all the anti-Ravik hunters, and then Ravik had reconvened the meeting and acceptance of the thirty-five cent a soul price had been voted unanimously. The police were still looking for the Kyvelsons. Ravik seemed to have gotten the idea that Joe Kyvelson was the mastermind of the hunter's cabal against him. I know if I'd found out that Joe Kyvelson and Oscar Fujisawa were in any kind of a conspiracy together, I wouldn't pick Joe for the mastermind. It was just possible, I thought, that Oscar had been fostering this himself, in case anything went wrong. After all, self-preservation is the first law— and Oscar is a self-preserving type. After Morell had finished his inspection and we'd gotten back in the car and were lifting, I asked him what he was going to offer, just as though I were the skipper of the biggest ship out of Port Sandor. Well, it meant as much to us as it did to the hunters. The more wax sold for, the more advertising we'd sell to the merchants, and the more people would rent teleprinters from us. Eighty centisoles a pound, he said. Nice and definite. Quite a difference from the way he stumbled around over listing his previous publications. Seventy-five's the Capstad price, regardless of what you people here have been getting from that crook of a belcher. We'll have to go far enough beyond that to make him have to run like blazes to catch up. You can put it in the times that the day of monopolistic marketing on Fenris is over. When we got back to the Times, I asked Dad if he'd heard anything more from Bish. Yes, he said unhappily. 
He didn't call in this morning, so I called his apartment and didn't get an answer. Then I called Harry Wong's. Harry said Bish had been in there till after midnight, with some other people. He named three disreputables, two female and one male. They were drinking quite a lot. Harry said Bish was plastered to the ears. They finally went out around 0130. He said the police were in and out checking the crowd, but they didn't make any trouble. I nodded, feeling very badly. Four and a half hours had been his limit. Well, sometimes a ninety percent failure is really a triumph. After all, it's a ten percent success. Bish had gone four and a half hours without taking a drink. Maybe the percentage would be a little better the next time. I was surely old enough to stop expecting miracles. The mate of the Pequod called in around noon and said it was safe for Oscar to come back to the ship. The mate of the Javelin, Ramon Llewellyn, called in with the same report, that along the waterfront at least the heat was off. However, he had started an ambitious-looking overhaul operation, which looked as though it was good for a hundred hours, but which could be dropped on a minute's notice, and under cover of this he had been taking on supplies and ammunition. We made a long audio-visual of Morell announcing his price of eighty centisols a pound for wax, on behalf of Argentine Exotic Organics Limited. As soon as that was finished, we loaded the boat clothes we'd picked up for him and his travel kit and mine into a car, with Julio Kubinoff to bring it back to the Times, and went to the waterfront. When we arrived, Ramon Llewellyn had gotten things cleared up, and the javelin was ready to move as soon as we came aboard. On the main city level, the waterfront is a hundred feet above the ship pools. The ships load from and discharge on to the first level down. The city roof curves down all along the south side of the city into the water, and about fifty feet below it. That way, even in the post-sunset and post-dawn storms, ships can come in submerged around the outer breakwater and under the roof, and we don't get any wind or heavy seas along the docks. Morell was interested in everything he saw, in the brief time while we were going down along the docks to where the javelin was berthed. I knew he'd never actually seen it before, but he must have been studying pictures of it, because, from some of the remarks he made, I could tell that he was familiar with it. Most of the ships had lifted out of the water and were resting on the wide concrete docks, but the javelin was afloat in the pool, her contragravity on at specific gravity weight reduction. She was a typical hunter ship, a hundred feet long by thirty abeam, with a squat conning tower amidships, and turrets for fifty-millimeter guns and launchers for harpoon rockets fore and aft. The only thing open about her was the air and water lock under the conning tower. Julio, who was piloting the car, set it down on the top of the aft gun turret. A couple of the crewmen who were on deck grabbed our bags and hurried them inside. We followed, and as soon as Julio lifted away, the lock was sealed. Immediately, as the contragravity field dropped below the specific gravity of the ship, she began submerging. I got up into the conning tower in time to see the water of the boat pool come up over the armor-glass windows and the outside lights come on. 
For a few minutes the javelin swung slowly and moved forward, feeling her way with fingers of radar out of the pool and down the channel behind the breakwater and under the overhang of the city roof. Then the waterline went slowly down across the windows as she surfaced. A moment later she was on full contragravity, and the ship which had been a submarine was now an aircraft. Morel, who was accustomed to the relatively drab sunsets of Terra, simply couldn't take his eyes from the spectacle that covered the whole western half of the sky. High clouds streaming away from the daylight zone to the west and lighted from below by the sun. There were more clouds coming in at a lower level from the east. By the time the javelin returned to Port Sandor, it would be full dark, and rain, which would soon turn to snow, would be falling. Then we'd be in for it again for another thousand hours. Ramon Llewellyn was saying to Joe Kyvelson, We're one man short. Devis, Abdullah's helper. Hospital. Get hurt in the fight last night? He was right with us till we got out to the elevators, and then I missed him. No, he made it back to the ship about the same time we did, and he was all right then. Didn't even have a scratch. Strained his back at work this morning, trying to lift a power unit cartridge by hand. I could believe that. Those things weighed a couple of hundred pounds. Joe Kyvelson swore. "'What's he think this is, the first century pre-atomic? Aren't there any lifters on the ship?' Llewellyn shrugged. "'Probably didn't want to bother taking a couple of steps to get one. The doctor told him to take treatment and observation for a day or so.' "'That's Aldivis?' I asked. "'What hospital?' Aldivis's strained back would be good for a two-line item. He'd feel hurt if we didn't mention it. Co-op hospital. That was all right. They always sent in their patient lists to the Times. Tom was griping because he'd have to do Devis's work and his own. You know anything about engines, Walt? he asked me. I know they generate a magnetic current and convert rotary magnetic current into one-directional repulsion fields, and violate the daylights out of all the old Newtonian laws of motion and attraction, I said. I read that in a book. That was as far as I got. The math got a little complicated after that, and I started reading another book. You'd be a big help. Think you could hit anything with a fifty-millimeter? Tom asked. I know you're pretty sharp with a pistol or a chopper, but a cannon's different. I could try. If you want to heave over an empty packing case or something, I could waste a few rounds seeing if I could come anywhere close to it. We'll do that, he said. Ordinarily, I handle the gun after we sight a monster, but somebody'll have to help Abdullah with the engines. He spoke to his father about it. Joe Kyvelson nodded. Waltz made some awful lucky shots with that target pistol of his, I know that, he said and I saw him make hamburger out of a slasher once with a chopper. Have somebody blow a couple of wax skins full of air for targets, and when we get a little farther southeast, we'll go down to the surface and have some shooting. 
I convinced Morell that the sunset would still be there in a couple of hours, and we took our luggage down and found the cubbyhole he and I would share with Tom for sleeping quarters. A hunter ship looks big on the outside, but there's very little room for the crew. The engines are much bigger than would be needed on an ordinary contragravity craft, because a hunter ship operates underwater as well as in the air. Then there's a lot of cargo space for the wax, and the boat berth aft for the scout boat, so they're not exactly built for comfort. They don't really need to be. A ship's rarely out more than a hundred and fifty hours on any cruise. Morell had done a lot of reading about every phase of the wax business, and he wanted to learn everything he could by actual observation. He said that Argentine Exotic Organics was going to keep him here on Fenris as a resident buyer, and his job was going to be to deal with the hunters, either individually or through their cooperative organization, if they could get rid of Ravik and set up something he could do business with and he wanted to be able to talk the hunter's language and understand their problems. So I took him around over the boat, showing him everything and conscripting any crew members I came across to explain what I couldn't. I showed him the scout boat in its berth, and we climbed into it and looked around. I showed him the machine that packed the wax into skins, and the cargo holds, and the electrolytic gills that extracted oxygen from seawater while we were submerged, and the ship's armament. Finally, we got to the engine room forward. He whistled when he saw the engines. Why, those things are big enough for a five-thousand-ton freighter, he said. They have to be, I said. Running submerged isn't the same as running in atmosphere. You ever done any swimming? He shook his head. I was born in Antarctica, on Terra. The water's a little too cold to do much swimming there, and I've spent most of my time since then in central Argentine, in the pompous country. The sports there are horseback riding and polo and things like that. Well, what do you know? Here was a man who had not only seen a horse, but had actually ridden one. That in itself was worth a story in the Times. Tom and Abdullah, who were fussing around the engines, heard that. They knocked off what they were doing and began asking him questions. I suppose he thought they were awfully silly, but he answered all of them patiently, about horses and riding. I was looking at a couple of spare power unit cartridges, like the one Aldivas had strained his back on, clamped to the deck out of the way. They were only as big as a one-liter jar rounded at one end and flat at the other, where the power cable was connected. But they weighed close to two hundred pounds apiece. Most of the weight was on the outside, a dazzlingly bright plating of collapsium, collapsed matter, the electron shell collapsed onto the nucleus and the atoms in actual physical contact, and absolutely nothing but nothing could get through it. Inside was about a kilogram of strontium-90. It would keep on emitting electrons for twenty-five years normally, but there was a miniature plutonium reactor, itself shielded with collapsium, which, among other things, speeded that process up considerably. A cartridge was good for about five years. Two of them kept the engines in operation. 
the engines themselves converted the electric current from the power cartridges into magnetic current, and lifted the ship and propelled it. Abdullah was explaining that to Morel, and Morel seemed to be getting it satisfactorily. Finally, we left them. Morel wanted to see the sunset some more, and went up to the conning tower where Joe and Ramon were, and I decided to take a nap while I had a chance. End of chapter 7